Hello, uh, my name's Hannah. I'm a second year in chemistry and I'll be reading from the Bible. So it should be on your little handout. You know the drill by now. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Well, today we're looking at something a little bit different in uh, our public meeting. Uh, You might know that if you come week by week, what we normally do is just open up a part of the Bible in sequence and try and understand what it says to us about God, especially about what it says about Jesus. But one thing you may not know, some will, some won't, is that the Christian Union has what's called a doctrinal basis. Here it is. I know that looks like a lot of words, but it's not that many actually. That is, these are nine statements that we as the Christian Union hold to be not just true, but crucially, vitally, essentially true. There's lots of other things we believe and probably amongst us we differ on. Now, I must say up front, you don't have to believe these to come to Christian Union. Christian Union's an open club. This is a public meeting. Anybody can come. But if you want to know what Christian Union stands for, then this is how we express it in these nine fundamental truths that we hold to be true. If you want to be in leadership in Christian Union, then you actually need to sign your assent to these things course, we think that some truths really matter, others don't so much. And today we're going to look at one of these, number six, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, in the last three years or so, each year we've picked one or two of these who are just working in sequence. This is the one we're up to last week of second semester 2016. But number six says, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's fairly short and succinct, and I just want to Unpack that a little bit. It's been carefully worded. I'm going to ask three questions of it. What does it mean? So what? What's the significance? And uh, did it actually happen? Can we believe this? So they're my questions. So here we go. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What, What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about one particular person, a specific person, Jesus Christ, being raised, resurrected from being dead. He was dead, but now he's alive. Uh, The passage from Luke that we just had read to us is the end of Luke's account of Jesus. Uh, And in it, he he, uh, describes a a time when the disciples of Jesus were gathered together. This is a couple of days after Jesus was crucified. They were there. They had been with him for a number of years now. And on the Friday, they had seen him crucified in front of their eyes. 
strung up, executed by the Romans, pronounced dead on Friday afternoon, buried, and the tomb sealed up. They're now gathered Sunday night. They've heard rumours of things around, but they don't know much. And suddenly, Jesus appears with them, alive. And he does a number of things to show them what he thinks has happened, what's happened in his resurrection. Notice it's bodily. They think it's probably a ghost, which is sort of understandable, isn't it? You've seen somebody buried and suddenly that same person's in front of you. You think that must be a ghost. It must be an apparition or a hallucination. But she says, give me a piece of fish. And he eats it. And ghosts don't eat fish, do they? Well, I don't have much experience in it. I don't know whether you do, but I don't think so. It's a real body. And he shows them his hands and his feet. You can guess the significance of that, can't you? Because it was through his hands and feet that nails went. That is, this is the same body that was crucified. He's not a substitute. It's not Jesus had a twin somewhere and somebody's pulled them out of a rabbit hat. This is the same body that was crucified, now in front of them, alive, eating fish. And what Christians have always meant, and what the New Testament means when it uses the word resurrection, is somebody who was physically dead now being fully physically alive. It's not a revival. It's not a resuscitation. They were just sort of half dead and somehow we managed to pump some life, re-energise them, put a new battery in them, and they're right to go. Now, this is resurrection to immortal life. The resurrected Jesus, same body as the one that died, but in a transformed state, still physical, but able to do things that his previous physical body wasn't able to do and no longer ravaged by disease and death. And so the statement says the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So just in case you don't know what resurrection means, it adds bodily. It's redundant, but it's there because over uh, the centuries, many people have wanted to deny the bodily aspect of this. They've come up with alternate explanations of this idea of resurrection. They've changed the meaning of it often to, to, to incorporate something like the disciples seeing visions of Jesus or hallucinations, or maybe, as one person has been famously, uh, famously said, Jesus rose in the hearts of the disciples. And you can sort of get an idea of what the person means by that, can't you? He didn't rise out there, he just rose in here. I came to have a belief, an experience of a, an alive Jesus that was just internal within my heart. And so the people who framed this statement says that that's not what we believe. We believe something much more substantial, physical, historical than that, Jesus bodily rose from the dead as a real event in history, as real as your birth. I know you can't remember it, but you were there, weren't you? It, it really happened, and you, you can, you've got all the evidence that it happened, even if you can't remember it. Or this meeting here today, it's a historical meeting, isn't it? You can imagine somebody in five years coming, did the Christian Union have a public meeting on the 1st of November 2016 at one o'clock in, what's this one, Willsmore? And they could interview you and try and find out, were you there? Who was there? Who else was there? Could we go and see them? Well, it's it's that sort of event that we're talking about, to be investigated, falsified, like any other event in history. But it's not a normal event. That's part of the shock of it. It's quite abnormal, isn't it? As far as I know, this had never happened in history before or since. It's unprecedented. And at first sight, it seems really bizarre. It's the stuff of myths and legends are made of. It's sort of superhero stories that we know are fiction. You know, they kill the superhero and the next scene they're back alive again and you just say, well, it's fiction, that can happen. But 
can it actually happen in real life, in history? So I want to ask the question before we come to did it happen. Question, so what? Does it matter? What's the significance? You see, if something is normal, it's normally not very significant. Some of you are eating lunch at the moment. That's fairly normal, isn't it? And it's really not very significant. No historian is going to make a big, big deal of you eating your lunch today. They probably don't care what you ate. It's only abnormal events that have significance. But there are some abnormal events that have no real significance. Here's one I dug up. Not quite sure where I found it. Just follow this through. On the 28th of July in the year 1900, before you were born, King Umberto I of Italy went to a small restaurant in Monza for dinner. When the owner, who was also called uh, Umberto, took the order, they noticed they were virtual doubles. That is, they almost looked the same as each other. As they talked, and dis- they discovered many, many more similarities. Both men, having the same name, were born on the same day, in the same town. Both married women of the same name. I presume they were different women, though, at this point. <laughs> on the same day. The restaurant opened on the same day that King Umberto was crowned King of Italy. The next day, I mean, that's enough to freak you out, isn't it? (laughs) The next day, King Umberto learned that the restaurateur had died earlier that day in a mysterious shooting. As the king expressed his regret, an anarchist in the crowd killed him. Like, their lives just go like this, don't they? You think, man, that is weird. Does it mean anything? Don't think so. It's just, just one of those weird things that happen sometimes. It's just, it's just a coincidence. It doesn't affect my life at all. Well, is Jesus' resurrection like that? It's weird, yes, but who cares? It doesn't matter. Well, that's what we want to explore. What's the significance of Jesus' resurrection for Jesus and for us? Well, we get some clues in that passage in Luke 24 that's on the back of your newsletter or the front. I don't know which way it goes. The other side, if you're on the outline. Jesus said in verse, says in verse 44, he told his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. You didn't get it, but I told you, everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. That is the whole Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures that the, the Jews had had now for four to five hundred years uh, in their completion and much of it before that, like the law of Moses. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will, must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Your witnesses, I'm going to send you. Do you see what he's saying? His resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, sure, it was personally significant. That's sort of easy to understand, isn't it? It made a difference to Jesus. It's better to be alive than dead, I suspect. But Jesus is saying it's much more than that. The whole Old Testament is the backstory that's necessary to understand the significance of my resurrection. And it's a backstory of something that must be fulfilled. That is, it's about God's plans and purposes. God has been gradually revealing through these 2,000 years of history, especially through his people, uh, the, the nation of Israel, that his Messiah one day would come and suffer and rise from the dead. The resurrection, says Jesus, is what God's Messiah does. And that's me, says Jesus. Not me, Tim. Me, says Jesus. Because in the Old Testament, we see this story of God beginning an incredible plan, a plan to do something effective 
about our mucked up world. He makes promises to Abraham. He brings the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and gives them a land of their own and gives them a king and settles them in that land. And gradually through that and through the words of the prophets and the promises that God keeps making, he gradually lets us know about this plan and where it's going to end up. He gradually gets more substance and detail. And Jesus says it all converges on one person, me, the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Messiah is a word we're half familiar with, isn't it? A Messiah is somebody who rescues you when you're in trouble by taking charge. I mean, that's what the dockers need again, isn't it? Someone to rescue them. Take charge. Lead them forward. Well, that's what a Messiah does. God's Messiah, though, is more than just a footy turn. God promised that his Messiah would be the way in which he decisively intervened to deal with the evil of our world and all its effects, to defeat his enemies and establish his rule permanently. In the Old Testament, God had made a promise to David, the king of Israel, that one day one of his descendants would reign forever. You think that's a little weird, isn't it? Like, who, who believes in forever except fairy tales? Maybe he just means a long time. But God actually meant forever. And how can somebody rule forever? Well, only if they're resurrected. Only if God brings them back from the dead to immortal life. God actually did mean forever, forever. And this is what he's doing through Jesus. And because Jesus now rules forever, this permanent rule, permanent victory, he brings the blessing of his victory and rule to anyone who'll take refuge in him. Not just for a lifetime, but forever. And the resurrection tells us very plainly that Jesus is that Messiah. Nobody else is. Jesus is. And because he's immortal, he will rule forever. He's begun. He will keep doing it. And because he's been raised, he's defeated death itself. The thing that we cannot defeat. And so this is one way that uh, the New Testament puts it. Christ Jesus, who's overpowered death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He's overpowered death. How did he do that? Well, the disciples had seen Jesus die. And that had been devastating, as you can imagine. They put all their hopes in him. They were, they were crushed. I presume they, they were sure this wasn't the Messiah. They, they'd hoped he was. But his death, his crucifixion, was just, well, it just killed any hope of that. But two days later, he's alive again. And, and they're touching him. They're, they're putting their fingers in those nail holes. They're confused. Their head's in, all in a spin. They don't know what to make of it. And Jesus educates them. He tries to help them to understand the significance. He gives them a sort of Bible 101 so they can work out what it's all about. And the outcome, he says, is that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be preached to all nations in his name. Repentance. Repentance is turning around. You see, if Jesus has been installed as the king in God's universe then all of us need to turn around. If we don't acknowledge him as king, we're living in a fool's paradise. We're living in a fantasy world because he is the king. Repentance and forgiveness. That is, for those who do turn around, who take refuge in Jesus, there's free and complete forgiveness. In his death, he's paid the penalty for our evil. And so he offers forgiveness to anybody and everybody who would like it. That's significant, isn't it? And the whole New Testament, as you read through it, rings with this excitement of Jesus' resurrection. God has done something. 
He's acted decisively. In Jesus' resurrection, the, the wall of death that we don't know what's on the other side, well, has had this huge hole smashed in it. And Jesus is now ruling. He's now king. He, all his enemies have been put under his feet forever. Not just till the next election, but forever and ever. So that's the significance for Jesus. But what about us? Well, lots of places we could look. Here's one from 1 Corinthians 15, a, quite a long chapter about resurrection. This is the so what for us. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. That's his assertion. That's what we believe. But the significance, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Now, I don't know whether you know the significance of calling it first fruits. If you run orchards or something, you probably do. Because this time of year, a lot of the fruit is starting to ripen. We've got an apricot tree at our place. It's been a bad year. The wind has just blown all the fruit off. But if we had some fruit on it, I'd be watching it each day. Because on the right day, when one of those has turned nice and orange and just getting a little bit soft, I'd pick it. And I'd sink my teeth into it. And it would taste just so sweet and beautiful. And that's the first fruits. So if the first one is like that, it tells you what all the rest will be like. It's the pattern of the rest and the guarantee that the rest will come. And so Jesus' resurrection, says the Apostle Paul, is like that. He goes on to explain, death came through a man. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then there's a gap. Then when he comes, when he returns, those who belong to him. See what he's saying? He's saying that as you look out in the world, all people die because of Adam. It's just a reality. It's, a, it's demonstrably easy to see that we all die. I haven't died yet, but it's going to happen. But Jesus' resurrection is sort of like that, but it's the opposite. If all die in Adam... Jesus' resurrection means that all will be raised. It brings life. If he's come back to life. A couple of verses later, he says this, He, that's Jesus, must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, death has already been overpowered, but it's still here, isn't it? It's still tangibly around. It still affects your life and my life and our family and our grandparents and others. But one day... It will be destroyed. How? Well, not by us going to heaven and living as an immortal soul. No, death still wins then. Not by reincarnation. No, it happens by resurrection. Exactly as Jesus said back in John 5. Don't be amazed at what I'm saying. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good rise to live. Those who have done what is evil rise to be condemned. See what he's saying? There'll come a day when you can visit Karakata Cemetery and every grave will be open. So at the moment, they're firmly shut. There's just bones and stuff in there if you care to dig around, which I don't like to do. <laughs> but one day, every single one of those graves and every person who's been cremated will be resurrected. How do I know that's going to happen? Well, Jesus says, because it happened to me first. I'm the first fruits, I'm the beginning, I'm the model. I'm the guarantee that that's going to happen for all people. See, one day, resurrection, which seems really abnormal, will be totally normal. Everyone will have experienced it. And so, coming back to 2 Timothy, Paul says, in Jesus, he's brought life 
and immortality to light through the gospel, through the message about Jesus' life and immortality. That's the significance. See, that weekend, Jesus died on the Friday, raised on the Sunday. That's the turning point of history, not just for Australia, not just for uh, a few people in this world, but for the whole universe, in fact. In the year, uh, 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 I think it was 532 AD, a, a guy called Dionysus, uh, that's not a photo of him, but he looked something like that, he was trying to work out a way to standardise a dating system for history and for the world. Because at that stage, it was all over the place. Now, if you wanted to say 2016, you didn't say 2016, you said something like, well, this is the third year of the reign of John in Swaziland. Well, this is 10 years after the earthquake in Lisbon. And this guy decided that he, he, in order to give us sort of a standardised dating, he'd divide history into two eras. And he asked the question, well, what's the most significant event in history that would be a good place to divide history? And his answer was Jesus. That's the answer. And so he called everything before Jesus BC, before Christ. And he turned everything after Jesus into after Christ. No, actually, he didn't, did he? What did he turn everything after Jesus to? Anno Domini, A-D. For those who don't know Latin like me, it means in the year of the Lord. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying not just there was an event that you can date things from. He's saying things are different now. This is not the year 2016 after Jesus. This is the 2016 year in which Jesus reigns. That's what he's saying. Now, you may disagree with that. And if you're going to be politically correct, you now say this is the, you know, the before the Christian era and after the Christian era. But it's not true, is it? The Christian era goes on. If this is reality, then Jesus is Lord. It's actually right to call it AD. But it's saying more than just it's a nice event and things have changed. It's saying up till Jesus, history had one way flow. What's that? History was all going in one direction because every single person who was born, who lived, was knocked over by death. Every single one. So you don't meet many people today who've been around for 200 years, do you? Why? Because they're not here. They died. They've all died. You go to Karakata Cemetery and the place is absolutely chockers. It's really full. And we've got no more room, so we're cremating most people now. It just keeps winning. Every person ever born dies until Jesus. Because when Jesus came, in one sense it looked like death had won. Death knocked him over as well, just like everybody else. He looked like another failed hope. He couldn't do anything, but Jesus stood back up. He was alive again. He alone has been able to go against that flow, stand against the current. In fact, move back against it, push it back a little bit. And creating a sort of shadow behind him, a slipstream, in which people like us can fit. Because one day he's going to turn the current around completely. See, death looks permanent. It looks like once you die, that's the end and there's no more. But Jesus came back to life. Death is tragic. But Jesus' resurrection shines a, a, a lantern, a, a torch, a, a light beam into that. And he's done something that no one else in all of history has been able to do. See, no one else could do anything about death. Moses couldn't do anything about it. He died and got buried. Muhammad couldn't do anything. The Buddha couldn't do anything. 
Confucius could tell you things about it but couldn't change it. Bill Gates, with his billions of dollars, can't do anything ultimately about death. Obama, the most powerful man in the world, Hussein Bolt. No, no one can do anything about it. But Jesus has. And Christianity is that exhilarating news. That's at the core, that Jesus has overpowered evil and death and brought light and immortality to light. That's the significance. And that is huge, isn't it? If that's true, that affects everybody who's ever lived, including everybody sitting in this room. And it affects us in a much more profound way than whether you pass or fail your exams next week. Now, I hope you do pass some of your exams. But actually, it's not life and death, is it? But that's what this is about. So if it's that significant, then the big question then becomes, well, did it happen? Now, there's lots of things we could do here, and I'm not going to do all of it. I'm just going to uh, point in a few directions. So if Jesus didn't actually rise then Jesus too was defeated by death and there's no hope. Unless he physically rose from the dead, bodily resurrection, then Christianity is a sham. And so the question is very weighty. Did it happen? This unprecedented event. It would actually take pretty strong evidence, I think, to believe in something like that. Is it there? It would need to be uh, such strong evidence that it renders all other explanations of the evidence untenable, apart from something as unprecedented, unique as a resurrection. So people have tried all sorts of other explanations for the evidence. The the most obvious ones and the ones that, that get the most hearing around the place is that the disciples either invented the stories about Jesus' resurrection or it was their um, unwitting wish fulfilment. They really wanted it to happen and they sort of persuaded themselves that it happened. But the actual evidence shows that those are untenable. And Luke's account of it, were the disciples expecting Jesus to rise from the dead? No, not at all. When he comes, they think he must be a ghost. When he appears, they're startled, they're freaked out by it. Now, there's more here than just the natural reaction to somebody who's dead being in front of you. We, we know they had a belief system. That ruled out the possibility of Jesus being raised at that point in time. They did believe in resurrection, but they believed that the resurrection of everybody would be at the end of the world. And they looked around their room and it clearly wasn't the end of the world. There was still fish on the fire to eat. It wasn't the end of the world. How could a resurrection happen? And as our knowledge of Judaism of the time has expanded and deepened, it's clearer and clearer that expecting a resurrection was just not anything that that would happen for people like the disciples. This was not a projection of their hopes, their wish fulfilment, nor it seems to me could it be a deliberate hoax. They're so surprised at it. But paradoxically, although it was completely unexpected for them, it was actually expected or should have been. And that's part of the evidence for it, because Jesus' resurrection, as we've seen, is part of a bigger story that makes sense, that sort of fits together. You see, If you heard a story, a strange story in the media, of some woman in a remote mountain area of Tibet being resurrected back to life again, what would you make of it? I presume you'd probably shrug your shoulders and say, that's bizarre, and go back to study. If you were studying in the first place. (laughs) Like, you wouldn't know what to make of it, would you? It doesn't seem to affect your life at all. It's just a bizarre event. 
If it doesn't have a context, if, if something doesn't tell you what it really means, then it really doesn't mean much at all. But Jesus' resurrection fits into this bigger story, the biggest story in the world. But before Jesus dies and rises, it was a story that nobody predicted would end that way, with the death and resurrection, with the suffering and glory of the Messiah. But afterwards, when Jesus opens their eyes to reread the, the Old Testament in the light of that event, it fits. It just, it's like a jigsaw puzzle that just goes and, and fits together. Of course that's what we should have expected. What would God need to do to have a Messiah who reigned forever? A permanent fix to the problem of evil and death in our world, apart from a resurrection. The disciples didn't see it coming. It's only afterwards, when Jesus explains, they see that it fitted. See, it was unexpected. It wasn't wish fulfilment. They didn't make it up. But it was expected. That is, there was the story there for it to fit into. The plans of God that makes it understandable and helps us to see why it matters. And it was witnessed by multiple people. Writing about 20 years after the date of the resurrection of Jesus, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Uh, He talks about Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised, and then the evidence for that is he appeared, he appeared, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then the twelve, and then more than 500 at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Uh, Pretty obvious what he's meaning by that, isn't it? If you want to check up, go and ask them. They're still alive, most of them. Notice this is a public document. This is not a private letter from one person to another trying to to get some sort of conspiracy theory going. This is a public letter written to a a church, handed around to other churches uh, around the Mediterranean world, the, the Roman Empire of the time. He appeared. People actually saw him. And it's only 20 years. Now, I know for you, 20 years seems a long time, but go home and ask your parents, can they remember your birth? That's probably 20 years ago, isn't it? I'm sure they do. (laughs) They won't remember every detail, but they can tell you whether it happened. That is for sure. And they can tell you some of the details because you've made an impression on their life. Well, this is only 20 years. The eyewitnesses are available. You can consult them. Luke has checked with them. But there's also doubt, and that's interesting. So Luke tells us that they doubted. It took convincing. You might know the story of Thomas, one of the 11, who wasn't there on the first occasion Jesus came. And Thomas says, I'm just not going to believe it. Dead people do not rise. He said that well before David Hume said it. He said, unless I stick my fingers in the holes, I'm not going to believe. And a week later... He had a chance to put his fingers in the holes. It took convincing and the evidence convinced him. We're told here they didn't believe in Luke 24 because of joy and amazement. It's it's an understandable explanation of what's going on, isn't it? I've got to pinch myself. I I don't think this can be true, but if it is, it's stunning. I, I, I may not know what it means yet, but it must mean something. It's natural to doubt such extraordinary events. And we shouldn't forbid doubt we should encourage people to look at the evidence that Jesus has given us. And the Bible itself is upfront about the problem. So Paul raises the question in him, for him, it's a hypothetical question, what if Jesus has not been raised? What happens then? Well, he says, our preaching's useless, so is your faith. Uh, more than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God, which is a pretty terrible thing to do, to give false testimony about God. God is the one who gets angry about that. 
and your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. There's no salvation if Jesus didn't rise. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, already dead, they're lost. There's no hope for them. And then he goes on to say, if only in this life we have hope, if it's just a a psychological trick to give us a, a more hopeful, happy life, then we of all people are to be most pitied. Do you hear the sort of hard-faced logic of this? He's willing to confront the reality, the possibility, sorry, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If it didn't actually happen, then I should give up being Christian. You should have pity on me for believing it. But if it did happen, it reverses the whole thing. And Paul is arguing it really did happen. So without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. With the resurrection, Christianity offers something that nothing else offers. It tells us of something that nothing else is able to tell us about. So believing in the resurrection. Orthodox, biblical, normal Christianity holds to the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, from the dead. Christianity is not essentially a philosophy of life. It's not a belief system, although it has beliefs like this one. It's not a moral reform program. It's the exhilarating news that God has done something. He's acted decisively. That Jesus has overpowered evil and death. And truth be known, most Australians are completely ignorant of that, aren't they? They haven't got a clue that Jesus has done that. And maybe we should tell them. And it has an effect on our lives. This is the end of 1 Corinthians 15. My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. If Jesus has been raised... If that actually happened in history, that gives us a firm place to stand, a hope to have, a place to build our life from. And it gives us a purpose. Give yourselves fully, abound in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. If there's a resurrection, then this life doesn't, it, sorry, death doesn't destroy the meaning of this life. Without resurrection, it does, doesn't it? You live and die, and it makes no difference in the end. If there's resurrection, then things go through into eternity and therefore abound in the work of the Lord. Very simple statement, isn't it? The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But it's dynamite. It it captures something that is so significant, so important, that there's nothing more important in the world, nothing more significant, nothing better than that. So my question I just want to leave you with is, have you felt the impact of that truth yet? Well, we've got a couple of minutes. Any questions you want to ask? Yeah. So Jesus' resurrection isn't the only time someone comes back from the dead in the Bible. So why is that the turning point? Why is this one different? Thank you. Did you hear the question? Other people have come back from the dead in the Bible. I presume you're thinking of people like um, the son of the widow of Nain, the Jairus' daughter, those sort of things within Jesus, but there's also some in the Old Testament. Um, The difference is that they were only, to to use a word slightly wrongly, they were resuscitated. That is, they died again. They were just brought back to mortal life. And so I presume the purpose of it is they point in a sort of, in a very real, tangible way, but an incomplete way to Jesus' resurrection, which is to immortality. And that's the change. So just to be brought back to life again, to die again, really doesn't change anything, does it? It just shows you somebody has got the power to do something about death, but hasn't actually done it yet. But with the resurrection of Jesus, it's begun. That, that makes some sense? Great.
So Henry? Would, would you say a similar thing about people in the Bible who never died? Um, so I guess you think of people like Enoch and Elijah who sort of get translated. Yeah, it seems like God, they avoid death, but they're not yet resurrected. Uh, I, I think is, is uh, the way to understand that. They're not resurrected. They're still waiting for resurrection that will come when Jesus returns. But uh, in God's kindness, they avoided the experience of death, although to a large extent they've suffered the effects of it. That is, they're no longer living here with us. Okay, there may be lots of other questions that's generated. Let's chat afterwards. I'd love to pray, though. Will you pray with me? Our God and Father, we thank you that you have taken decisive action in and for our world and for us. We thank you for sending your Son to die for sin and to rise again, conquering death and bringing new life and hope of resurrection for us. Father, please help us to work this out, to understand, but more than that, embrace the implications of it and live as those who give themselves to the work of the Lord. For Jesus' sake. Amen.